0: How to date a man. What would a woman do if she wanted to meet a man during the Romantic period? Head for the nearest ballroom, I suppose. But to do so was a good deal more complicated than diving onto the disco floor in our own time. There were rules, and rules about rules. For instance, a man could invite a woman to dance only after having been formally introduced. "'If she accepted the invitation, she had to give him at least two dances. "'If she declined, she was out of the game for the remainder of the evening "'and would be treated to the humiliation of watching from the sidelines "'as her rivals took their pick of the healthiest, wealthiest, and classiest bucks about town. "'But in their day, as in ours, rules weren't always followed.' and women and men often found themselves in negotiation with the conventions of the dating game. There are parallels with dating today, heightened by the romantic's hell-raising propensities. For instance, the 16-year-old Mary Goodwin was ignoring her father's strictures when she took her new boyfriend the married, 22-year-old poet Percy Shelley to her mother's grave in St. Pancreas' churchyard, where she declared her love for him. William Wordsworth's parents were no longer around when he went to revolutionary France in 1791, but his guardians were. They were telling him, in no uncertain terms, to train for the priesthood. Instead, he seduced Annette Vallon and got her pregnant with their daughter, Anne Caroline. Claire Claremont had not met Byron when she wrote to him in 1816, declaring her love of many years, demanding that he receive her alone and with the utmost privacy at any hour that was convenient. By the time they were reunited in Switzerland, she was pregnant with her daughter. And then there was Thomas de Quincy who didn't just indulge in the prolonged drug binges, but wrote about them and published his findings as Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Robert Morrison points out that he invented recreational drug-taking not because he was the first to swallow opiates for non-medical reasons – he was hardly that – but because he was the first to commemorate his drug experience in a compelling narrative that was consciously aimed at and consumed by broad commercial audience. What then do these writers with their chaotic personal lives have to tell a modern female about finding a marriageable man? As Austen knew, the difficult thing is not to find a man, but to find the right man. Easier said than done. Whole novels are constructed out of the lengthy, sometimes painful process whereby women learn to distinguish between a Wickham and a Darcy, a Willoughby and a Brandon, a Crawford and a Bertram. That is, between good husband material and the bastards of the world. That's why Austen provides examples of women who fail that test with disastrous consequences. Lydia Bennet. Pride and Prejudice, Maria Bertram, Mansfield Park, and Eliza Williams, Sense and Sensibility, to name a few. This lesson remains as current as ever. For one thing, as Elizabeth Bennet discovers, it is easy to misjudge the right man. In Chapter 10, Darcy had never been so bewitched by any woman as he was by her. But not until chapter 50 is Elizabeth convinced that she could have been happy with him. In Persuasion, the situation is more extreme. Anne Elliot is betrothed to Frederick Wentworth 19 years before the action of the novel takes place. But they have no desire to be together until the novel's final pages, by which time other women have come to regard Anne as on the shelf. Austin knew a thing or two about the difficulty of finding Mr. Wright. She received a proposal of marriage from Harris Big Wither on 2 December 1801, five years her junior, which she immediately accepted, only to rescind her decision the following day. Biographers guess at her thought process during those hours, but there is no doubt where they led her to the conclusion that Mr. Right was really Mr. Wrong. She couldn't have taken that decision without having the guts to face the consequence. There are numerous examples among female romantic writers of bad matches with disastrous outcomes. Poet Charlotte Turner was sold to Benjamin Smith, who got her and their infant children imprisoned for his gambling debts. Felicia Brown, married Captain Elf Hemans, who gave her five children, then retired to Rome on the proceeds of her writing while she laboured to raise their children. Letitia Elizabeth Landon, married to the governor of the Gold Coast, George Maclean, went to live with him in Africa and shortly after was found dead at the age of 36 with a bottle of prussic acid in her hand. What would have happened, one wonders, had Dorothy Wordsworth agreed to marry William Hazlitt when asked to do so in 1803? Or the actress Fanny Kelly had agreed to marry Charles Lamb when invited in 1818? In neither case had there been much dating as we know it. There were basic rules, then as now, to finding a suitable partner. For instance, Beware of the handsome, seductive man about town, especially if he's a war hero. The archetypal such figure is George Wickham in Pride and Prejudice, the army officer who charms Elizabeth Bennet, only to be unmasked as a gambler, a libertine, and a liar. Such characters exist in life as in fiction, and the more glamorous they are, the more likely they are to disappoint. Who could resist an American in Paris? Not Mary Wollstonecraft, who fell for Gilbert Imlay, a former soldier in the American Revolutionary War, when she encountered him at the epicenter of the French Revolution in April 1793. She bore him a daughter, Fanny, but the discovery he was engaged in a clandestine relationship with other women would precipitate two suicide attempts, In her last letter to him, she observed, with typical astuteness, It is strange that, in spite of all you do, something like conviction forces me to believe that you are not what you appear to be. Much the same could be said of other such men. For instance, cavalry officer Bannister Tarleton also fought in America, but on the British side. According to one source, seduction of the actress and writer Mary Robinson was achieved by recounting the dangers he had undergone, the hair-breadth scapes he had ventured, the toilsome marches he had sustained, the wonders he had seen, and all the strange adventures that fill a soldier's life. That he was dashing and had a military pension of 341 pounds a year— can only have enhanced his eligibility. And with Mary's annuity of 500 pounds, their lifestyle could have been lavish, except for his gambling habit, which kept them at the doors of the debtor's prison throughout the 15 years of their affair. By the time they split up, Robinson was many thousand pounds of debt, thanks to Tarleton's losses at the Faro table. Married men then as now were more available on the dating scene than any sane woman had reason to expect. Mary Wollstonecraft was aware that Henry Fuselli was married when she took up with him in the late seventeen eighties. Indeed, Fuselli was not only married when Wollstonecraft fell in love with him, but rampantly bisexual. An energetic letter-writer, he knew how to exploit his adopted language for romantic purposes. You slanting eye of love, you creature of roses, lilies and violets, you womanly virginity, you precocious coaxer of tears, you who make me wring my hands so desperately. Who receiving such sweet nothings through their mailbox could resist?' Wollstonecraft wanted to pursue her passion for Fuseli by becoming a member of his household, an idea of a ménage à trois vetoed by his wife Sophia. Her rejection devastated Wollstonecraft, who declared, My wayward heart creates its own misery. Those are the dates that led to disaster. What about the ones that didn't? In Austenland... The memorable liaisons between unmarried women and unmarried men tend to be walks or excursions, which aren't dates, at least not in the modern sense, such as the walk through the woods in Chapter 9 of Mansfield Park or the outing to Box Hill in Emma. So how did the romantics go dating? In Austen's novels, some of the most memorable encounters between men and women take place when they are not formally going out at all. In the end, the choice of husband in Austen's work is a moral one, because it obliges a woman to assess the character of the man who proposes to her. Anything that obscures our moral vision is a handicap. Austen illustrates that thesis in Emma, where arrogance and self-righteousness repeatedly prevent the heroine from making... Good moral choices until, of course, she realizes her own foolishness and her inner feelings about the avuncular, even paternal moral guise, the appropriately named Mr. Knightley. The fundamentals of dating, one might argue, would never change because people, one might also argue, do not change. Women in the Romantic period were guided by the same thing that lures women and men into unsuitable marriages today the desire for perfect love that can survive every challenge against which it is pitched. That is a frequent theme of Felicia Heman's poetry, in which one woman after another sacrifices herself in the name of love. But the point of these poems is that they portray pure, selfless relationships of the kind that eluded the author, their ideals, the depiction of a love made perfect by the forces that attempt to destroy it, a love for a woman for a man, of one human being for another, even in extremis. This is perhaps best exemplified in her remarkable poem, Gertrude, or Fidelity Till Death, 1826, from her collection Records of Woman, which tells the story of Baroness Gertrude von der Wert, who loyally watched the execution of her husband, tortured to death, on the wheel in fourteenth century Germany after being convicted of treason against the Emperor Albert. Heymans explains the origin of her poem, melodramatic, spine chilling, and compelling in a short preface. The Baron Vanderwaart Accused, though it is believed unjustly, as an accomplice in the assassination of Emperor Albert, was bound alive on the wheel and attended by his wife Gertrude throughout his last agonizing hours with the most heroic devotedness. Her own sufferings, with those of her unfortunate husband, are most affectionately described in a letter which she afterwards addressed to a female friend and which was published some years ago at Harlem in a book entitled Gertrude von der Voort, or Fidelity, unto Death.
1: Gertrude, or Fidelity Till Death, by Felicia Hemans. The Baron von der Wart, accused, though it is believed unjustly, as an accomplice in the assassination of the Emperor Albert, was bound alive on the wheel and attended by his wife Gertrude throughout his last agonising hours with the most heroic devotedness. Her hands were clasped, her dark eyes raised, the breeze threw back her hair, up to the fearful wheel she gazed, all that she loved was there. The night was round her clear and cold, the holy heaven above, its pale stars watching to behold the might of earthly love. And bid me not depart, she cried, my Rudolph, say not so. This is no time to quit thy side. Peace, peace, I cannot go. Hath the world ought for me to fear when death is on thy brow? The world, what means it? Mine is here. I will not leave thee now. I have been with thee in thine hour of glory and of bliss. Doubt not its memory's living power to strengthen me through this. And thou, mine honoured love and true, bear on. Bear nobly on, we have the blessed heaven in view, whose rest shall soon be won. And were not these high words to flow from woman's breaking heart? Through all that night of bitterest woe she bore her lofty part. But, oh, with such a glazing eye, with such a curdling cheek, love, love. Of mortal agony thou, only thou, shouldst speak. The wind rose high, but with it rose her voice that he might hear. Perchance that dark hour brought repose to happy bosoms near. While she sat striving with despair beside his tortured form, and pouring her deep soul in prayer forth on the rushing storm. She wiped the death damps from his brow with her pale hands and soft, whose touch upon the lute cords low had stilled his heart so oft. She spread her mantle o'er his breast, she bathed his lips with dew, and on his cheek such kisses pressed as hope and joy ne'er knew. Oh, lovely are ye, love, and faith enduring to the last, she had her meed, one smile in death, and his worn spirit passed. While, even as o'er a martyr's grave, she knelt on that sad spot, and, weeping, blessed the God who gave strength to forsake it not.